This is the Unraveled Podcast with hosts Caleb Aring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Aring. I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Season 1 of Unraveled, Episode Number 5. And in this week's episode, we have a special treat for you. Last week, we discussed the interrogations of Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot and how those led up to their confessions. And we promised you that this week we would have an interview for you. So, Nicole, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest? Our guest this week is Jim Trainum. Jim just came out with a book recently called How the Police Generate False Confessions, An Inside Look at the Interrogation Room. If Jim Trainum is a name that sounds familiar to you, it might be because you're a podcast junkie. Jim was also featured on an NPR episode specifically about confessions. And Jim Trainum was interviewed by Sarah Koenig in the first season of Serial. We were really excited to be able to talk to Jim about false confessions. He was a detective for over 20 years in the, the D.C. area. Jim comes to this from a very unique perspective, having been a police officer. And I don't want to get too much into his background because we're actually going to talk about that some in the interview. Uh, So with that, I think we will just hop right into our interview with Jim. We are investigating uh, an old crime and, and looking into what happened there. And so we really wanted to talk to you about confessions. Um, And so to start, if we could just get some of your background on your research into confessions. Sure. Uh, My background is I spent 27 years with the Washington Metropolitan Police uh, Department. Most of that was in homicide. I began homicide in 1993. Um, Soon after that, I actually picked up a murder case. It was a very high-profile murder case. And uh, we were led to a suspect based on an anonymous tip that came in uh, from us putting out some some photographs that we took off of a bank surveillance camera and a uh, composite. And we then thought we had some good forensic evidence um, based on some evidence that, that we had recovered on the scene, or one of the scenes, I should say. And so we arrested this woman, and several hours into the interrogation, she uh, confessed to the murder. Uh, We did, during our follow-up investigation, uh, we discovered that she had an alibi that we couldn't shake. And then we had to go back and look at our original evidence, and we found out that our forensic evidence wasn't as accurate as we were told it was, let's see, originally. So that's how I got a false confession. And so it it took years to kind of figure out what happened. Uh, Fortunately, this woman was not convicted, we found out before we went to trial. Um, But still, because certain things were not obvious to us at the time, and the false confession research really wasn't out 
amongst the law enforcement community that it took us a while to, like I said, to absolutely realize that that's what this was. And so what I did was during my career with the police department, I took that experience, I used it as a teaching tool in order to uh, teach other detectives about the red flags that they should be looking for, about the mistakes that I had made and how to avoid those things as well. And it's kind of mushroomed from there. I now teach attorneys, uh, judges, prosecutors, and also uh, law enforcement officers on that. And that's how the book came about. Basically, the book is um, the combination of several lectures that I have done, not only on false confessions, but on how we can also get bad witness statements, uh, how informants can be corrupted, and actually how guilty pleas are nothing more a false guilty pleas are nothing more than using the same techniques that we use in the interrogation room to force a guilty plea. I think something really interesting that I believe was mentioned in an interview that you did with NPR is that a lot of times when you go and would speak to colleges and things like that, you'd actually call your presentation something else and then just kind of talk about false confessions at the end because of this concern that people wouldn't want to hear it if you named it like false confessions 101 or something. Yeah, that was mostly when I talked to law enforcement. Other people are pretty much open to the fact that, you know, false confessions occur. But initially when I began doing this uh, with law enforcement, if I approached it from the uh, using the title false confessions, they were pretty defensive. And so I tried to use it as a case study and kind of walk them through the case as I saw it and then let them show how the case collapsed or show them how the case collapsed around us and then go back and examine it. And um, more often than not, uh, the law enforcement officers were very, very receptive to what I had to say because, you know, except for a very few rogue cops out there, there's really that nobody that's trying to get a false confession. Uh, they, one of the problems is, is that they honestly think that the person is guilty when they go into the interrogation room. And because of the way that we're taught to interrogate, it encourages tunnel blindness. And, um, so as a result, they are looking for what they think they should see, and they're forcing the issue rather than listening to what the suspect has to say and trying to evaluate it on its own terms. And most, most officers will come up to me afterwards and say, hey, this is great stuff. I kind of wish I'd had this training you know, years ago. That was a part of um, your work that I, I feel really interested in is the idea that um, – most detectives are not after a false confession, that they are making these mistakes kind of without knowing that they're making these mistakes or that they do have this sort of tunnel vision and that's really where they start to sort of maybe get the wrong information. Um, do you, you feel that that is really sort of where they're coming at it from, is that they aren't in their trying to just get a confession no matter what, but that they actually believe that this person is guilty? Well, they are trying to get a confession no matter what, but it's because they believe the person is guilty. 
uh, you know, yeah. they've uh, come to that conclusion. They've anchored in on it. And, you know, the thing about it is we're all guilty of this. We all fall victim to tunnel vision and verification bias. We all come up with our own uh, theory or perception of something, and we kind of uh, look for things that confirm what we believe rather than trying to analyze the information for what it is. And even back in the 1800s, they knew about this. I mean, you know, Sherlock Holmes, a famous saying is, is that you should not theorize before you have all the evidence, because then what you start to do is mold the evidence to, 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 to fit the theory. And I didn't quote him exactly, but <laughs> that's pretty much the gist of what he was saying right there. I guess that leads me to to really wonder if that is this sort of human condition that we often get stuck in tunnel vision and we are only sort of hearing the information that fits our story, then how do we start to move into interrogations in a way where we are getting actual information that is true or hearing all of it? Like what, how does a detective then go in and instead of only hearing what they need to hear, actually hear everything that is being said? Well, several things can be done. First off, the detective has to recognize that tunnel vision does exist and that, that we all fall victim to it. And that's why it's always good to have other people uh, looking at your case playing the devil's advocate, you know, trying to come up with alternative explanations for the evidence, that sort of thing. Two, the way that we go into the, the way that we interrogate has to change. If you look at the way that an interrogation is structured, uh, well, going back a little bit, all of the, most of the major interrogation schools out there, in fact, the, the leading one in the U.S. basically says that we do not interrogate to get confessions, we interrogate to get to the truth, which is BS when you look at the way that the interrogation is structured. Um, you know, you go in there, you tell the person up front that we know that you committed this crime, that all the evidence is there, there's nothing that you can say that will convince us otherwise, all we want to know is why. We then go and we offer them themes, excuses for why they may have committed the crime. Now, these excuses are supposed to be moral justifications. However, Quite frequently, we slip into legal justifications that offer some sort of leniency uh, or things like that, and that's improper because what you're doing is you're telling the person, look, you're jammed up. You are screwed. The only way that you can get out of this is by telling us what we want to hear. And that's the thing. you know, um, When we have a preconceived notion of how the crime occurred, and we're convinced that this person person committed the crime, then in order for them to escape any sort of inevitable consequence and get any kind of benefit that we're offering, they have to offer a narrative that fits what we believe to be true. And uh, that's, that's actually what happens in both good confessions and bad. I mean, we screwed up some really, really good interrogations by suggesting things to the person that we thought happened that turned out didn't happen. But they incorporated it into the narrative in order to get that benefit. Um, and we can be very, very persuasive when it comes to, uh, you know, 
we pretty much temporarily uh, to create this perception that it's in their best interest to confess. And I'll be honest with you, even if you're guilty of sin, it is never in your best interest to confess. So. <laughs> that is true. I think that's, you know, that's the part too. I think in our case that we're looking at, you know, we have two men who have taped confessions and, and something that is hard for folks when they hear this or they hear these kind of stories is that why would a person who hasn't done something confess to a crime they haven't committed? I think the average person has a hard time wrapping their brain around that and really digs their heels in and says they would never do that. You know, if I didn't commit a crime, there's no way I would commit, I would admit to something I haven't done. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you think causes folks to, to admit to things they haven't done or kind of how does that how do we end up there well sure well first i would like to address that issue that people you know that perception that people have of themselves that they would never do this and so therefore no one else would either um and we do that all the time we always kind of think that we would act a certain way in a certain situation but we are really the worst at predicting how we would act once we do face that situation. And, you know, no, people who have not been in an interrogation role, who have not been subjected to the sort of pressures and persuasive, and let's say persuasive techniques that we're trained to use, have no comprehension of what that's like. And they have no idea how they would respond. Um, when it comes to confessing to a crime that you didn't do, my response is always, well, why would you confess to a crime that you did do? I mean, people confess to crimes that put them in jail for 30 years to life uh, or even get to the death penalty. Uh, even if you're guilty, why would you do that? Why would you think that that's a good idea? The same dynamics are in place with an innocent person. Like I said, we kind of you know, create this, pers this perspective that you're done you know, you are going to be convicted no matter what. Um, and the only way that you can avoid that is by confessing, telling people that you're remorseful, and telling us the narrative that we want to hear. Um, you know, it, it's just that simple. And uh, there's all sorts of different incentives that we could use. And one of the examples that I would use that I think a lot of people could relate to, especially uh, people with children, is there's been a lot of controversy recently about uh, things like shaken baby case syndrome and the, and the diagnosis for that. And there have been time and time again where it's been proven that the original diagnosis of, of a baby being injured or dying from shaken baby uh, syndrome turned out not to be true. They died of natural causes. But picture this. You're a mother You've just brought your child into the emergency room. The child is unconscious. You have no idea what's wrong with your child. A detective comes out and tells you, the doctor says that somebody shook this baby. That's the reason why, why your child's unconscious. Now, if you want to help your child, if you want to help save your child, I need to know what happened. And you're the only person who was with that child during that time period. So if you want to save your child and if you want to keep your other children from being taken away from you, tell me what happened. 
And your memory starts to go, oh, my God, this detective is telling me that there's scientific evidence that my baby was shaken. And I'm the only one who had was with my child during that time. And so it goes from, well, maybe maybe I laid my child down a little bit too hard. And then it starts to kind of grow from that. And the detective may, might make some more suggestions. And it goes from maybe I laid my child down too hard to, yes, I did shake my baby, but I didn't mean to. And suddenly she's arrested and she's in jail for a crime that really didn't occur. Yeah, that's a great example. I also, you know, I wanted to touch on the use of lie detector tests when there are interrogations or to verify the results um, that you get. I know in the specific case that you talked about, there was a lie detector test involved. And in the case that we're looking at, um, someone was given a lie detector test and then told that he didn't pass the lie detector test and then in interrogated for many, many hours before the confession. What sort of role do lie detectors tests play in interrogations and how reliable are they in helping with that process? Well, if you listen to the people who give the lie detector tests, they are totally reliable. If you listen to the people who study lie detector tests, they're a crap dude, <laughs> you know. Um, they're voodoo boxes, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, we're always looking for that golden, you know, bullet, the one out there that's going to help us determine whether or not somebody's lying absolutely. Uh, we were taken in for a while by these voice stress tests, which were similar to the lie detector test. Uh, but they're completely bogus as well. Um, but the thing about the lie detector test is when you're given one, you're pretty much told by the examiner. They really psych it up that this thing is infallible that there's no way that you can beat it. And so, you know, the benefit of it is that it typically psychs up the person to the point where they think, okay, I can't beat it, so I might as well tell them. Um, it's great for, let's say, pre-employment uh, interviews because you get a lot of extra stuff from people. But when it comes to, you know, criminal investigations, um, I never believe them. In fact, the best polygraph examiners that I've ever worked with say that you should never follow the polygraph. You should always follow the evidence. And this brings me to another topic is that, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but we're allowed to lie to within a certain limit, but we're allowed to lie to the suspect in the interrogation room. We're allowed to tell them that there are witnesses that saw them commit the crime, that they failed a polygraph test, that, that you know, things along that line. So that's part of the entire interrogation process. So think about it. I mean, you're being accused of a crime that you didn't commit. You're being told that there are witnesses that saw you do it. And you're thinking, okay, well, they're mistaken, but, you know, the, the cops say that they believe these witnesses. And then you're being told that you flunk this very scientific, quote, unquote, uh, test that absolutely proves that you did it. And the only, the only way that you can get out from under this is by telling me what I want to hear. So, yeah, I mean, polygraphs are just another uh, one of those voodoo box tricks that they can pull out of their hat and, you know, use one way or the other. And a lot of detectives will investigate by polygraph. What they do is they, you know, they totally believe in that stuff. And so they'll bring people in, put them on a polygraph, and rule them in or out as suspects based solely on the polygraph results. Uh, 
rather than the evidence. And that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. So you mentioned that, you know, in this interrogation process, detectives are allowed to lie within, you know, some perimeters there, use a polygraph test and say that they failed the polygraph test, and that you're allowed to use these very, very persuasive techniques just to get the, the story, the narrative that you're after. So it leaves me to believe that once you get this information. Now you get the information that you want. You get the, the person to give you the story that fits your narrative. Now you have that information. And you had mentioned in another interview that that information, the key is that that information needs to be reliable and it needs to be corroborated. Once you have that information and that, so you've done everything you can do to get it. And then once you have it, what happens if you find that that information isn't reliable or that it can't be corroborated? At what point do detectives say, okay, this is enough. This isn't, this isn't lining up, you know, this didn't, this didn't work, um, even though we got confessions. Right. You know, unfortunately, people cry for confessions because they're easy to use to close cases. Confessions make the lazy cops. And what happens a lot of times afterwards is once the confession is obtained, all the investigation stops at that point. Um, but you really, I mean, you would not take what a witness says at face value. You would not take what a suspect, what a uh, victim says at face value. If a witness says, yeah, I saw the man beat him to death with a pipe and the guy was shot three times with a 38, you wouldn't believe that witness. But because the person says, I did it, you know, I hit him with a pipe, for some reason, we seem to think that that's reliable. And I think it is because we fall back on that, that misconception that no one would ever confess to a crime that they didn't commit. They admit it to killing the guy. It's just that they got the details wrong. <laughs> so, um, but, but the devil's in the details. Uh, you, there are certain steps that need to be taken with every single confession, witness statement, victim statement, before you determine that that statement is accurate and reliable. And only then can you go forward with that information and sponsor it. Um, but we, too often we take that shortcut. And what are those steps that you would recommend someone taking to verify that a statement is reliable? Well, basically, you need to know your crime scene, and you need to know exactly what you know for sure about your crime scene. Uh, and that usually comes from the forensic evidence. Uh, the question that one of my colleagues always uh, asks is, how do you know what you think you know? Uh, well, we know the person was shot because the autopsy said that they were shot. We know exactly where they were shot because of the autopsy results. That's pretty hard evidence right there, and that's something that you can really put your teeth into. Other evidence like witness statements and things like that, they're a bit more subjective. Um, so when you look at a confession, you look at, okay, what details are they telling us about the crime scene and about the events that occurred around the crime scene? Do we, as detectives, know that that information is true based on our investigation? That's, but more importantly, can we show that that information was provided by the suspect and not, from, and not obtained through some outside source 
like the media, neighborhood rumors, or more importantly, the detective. Uh, we're supposed to create what we call holdback information. These are details that nobody knows about the crime except us and the suspect. If the person is giving you those holdback details, that's pretty good stuff. But you have to show that it wasn't provided to them by me during the interrogation, either through showing them crime scene photographs, through asking leading questions, through even telling them what I know about the crime scene. That's one form of cooperation. And the second form, which is even better, is that the person, which you should always seek, is is the person telling me information that I did not know that I can now go out and corroborate? Um, and if that's missing, then, like I said, you really have to look very critically at the uh, videotape to see whether or not the person is giving information themselves or the detective is feeding it. By looking at the videotape, if you have one, because a lot of agencies still don't videotape, um, it helps let you see who's telling the story, the detective or the suspect. And if it's the detective, that's a red flag right there. And do you think that all interrogation should be videotaped at this point? Absolutely. From beginning to end. Yes, because if you just do the very end, what you what you got there is the rehearsed version. You've got the version that's been worked out between the detective and the suspect. Uh, and you've ironed out all the rough spots. And so the very final version is the version that is the creation of both of them together. And you miss out on all the interrogation tactics uh, that, that convince the person that it was a good idea to do this. Uh, videotapes don't stop false confessions. They just give you the tools in order to go back and review the tape. And, you know, one interesting phenomena that comes up and that people bring up, they, they, they typically will try to argue, well, look, if the detective was trying to get this guy to, you know, to give a false confession, don't you think that he would have gotten the details, all the details right? And uh, because a lot of times in false confessions, they get some details right and some details wrong. The detective ex explains away the wrong details by saying, Oh, no, they were just trying to cover for somebody. They were trying to minimize their involvement. But the reality is it's that phenomenon where the detective thinks that they're doing a good job. They think that they know that they're not supposed to feed this stuff to them. So they unintentionally feed some, but not the other stuff. And the person is trying to figure out the story based on the clues that they're being given by, by the detective. And so typically the final uh, version is a combination of truth and what the guy's trying to use to fill in the blanks right there. Oh, one other good red flag to look for were things left out of the interrogation because either the detective did not give them to the person or the detective didn't know that information going into the interrogation. Um, there are several cases out there like that. Like the detective knew going into the interrogation room that the uh, victim was uh, had her throat cut. However, the detective did not know about the blunt force trauma that occurred to the victim during the attack. And so the suspect confesses to, yes, I cut her throat, but says nothing about the blunt force trauma. 
So you're wondering, okay, why did he leave that out? It's because the detective didn't know it, so the detective couldn't have unintentionally provided him with that information during their uh, interaction with each other. And, you know, one of the things I found really fascinating about that first case that that you had um, that really led you to see that you had elicited this false confession was it sounds like the part of the interrogation where you saw what had actually happened wasn't supposed to be recorded. It was that by accident, the recording hadn't been turned off um, in the interim before recording her confession. What things you picked up on during that time period that, that weren't supposed to be recorded that made you realize that this confession wasn't valid? Well, several things. Um, in this case, uh, the victim's credit cards had been used by the suspects. And during the videotaping, we asked the suspect to uh, look at the credit card slips. And the reason was we wanted her to acknowledge that that was her signature, um, where the victim's name had been signed. Now, think about if you look at a credit card slip, what sort of information can you get off a credit card slip? The name of the store, the address of the store, the amount that was spent, but not the items that were purchased. So later on in the interrogation, in the part that was being recorded that we didn't know was being recorded, that information was given back to us, except for the exact items that were purchased. Um, we got information, we, we unintentionally fed information through the use of leading questions. Now, leading questions are questions that suggest what the answer is, or at least suggest the way that we want the, the narrative to go. Um, showing crime scene photos, a big no-no, but we do it anyway. Um, the person guessing. If you'll see people who are in this sort of situation, they'll guess a lot. And when the guesses are not right, we accuse them of lying. When the guesses are right or close to right, we say, okay, now we're making progress. So basically, a interrogation becomes a game of 20 questions where through that interaction, I as the detective, I am helping to shape that narrative, that final narrative that then the suspect is going to adopt as their own. When it's really not their own, it's, it's a combination of both of us putting this story together. So yeah, there's lots of ways that information can be provided to somebody in little subtle ways that they can then use to you know, create this believable story. Uh, you see psychics do this all the time. Uh, they, there's techniques out there that they call cold reading. And you can go on the internet and take classes on how to do this. And basically it's just ways to convince people that you know more about them than, than you really do. And you see that happening in reverse a lot of times in interrogations, those people intuitively using those techniques to get information from the detective in order to make this believable narrative. 
And prior to this case that you had the opportunity to go back and see this video and really see what you had done and able to kind of able to at that moment be able to really acknowledge, oh, I, I got a false confession here. Um, prior to that, you I had done interrogations before and had you just really thought, well, these techniques are useful and and not really able to kind of see the way you were getting information prior to this? Yes. Uh, basically, the way that interrogation schools are done is they base, they pretty much don't even talk about false confessions. They don't even bring it up. And so you're left with the perception. In fact, uh, one interrogation school pretty much says that if you use our technique properly, you will not get a false confession, which is totally bogus. Um, some of the interrogation schools have kind of changed a little bit. They started to write and publish in their books and in some of their manuals uh, more about how to cooperate evidence and, you know, and how to avoid false confessions. But that stuff does not make it to the classroom. It's never, ever, ever brought up in the classroom. Uh, to me, interrogation training in this country is just like a doctor being taught a medical procedure but not being taught the dangers of it you know, the side effects of it, how to recognize them and how to deal with them. And so we're really doing a disservice to the investigators out there who want to do a good job. They're just getting lousy training. And not only, I think the, when I hear these stories, um, I definitely believe that the interrogators are getting bad information, but I also think of the individuals who are being interrogated and the amount of um, you know, you look at something like the Innocence Project, how many people who are later found not guilty have gone to prison? How much time is actually being spent where people are spending time in custody for things that they didn't do? I think that's really what, um, for me, I start to think of the countless individuals who have been coerced into saying things that they didn't actually do and sort of how we are perpetuating that by continuing continuously teaching techniques that are dangerous. And just a couple of things along that, those lines. First off, when it comes to exonerations, uh, wrongful convictions that involve a false confession are the hardest to exonerate because in so many cases, that confession trumps everything. It doesn't matter if the DNA says that there was somebody else involved. It doesn't matter if you have a thousand eyewitnesses who place them somewhere else along with documentation. That confession wipes all of that away. Um, and when it comes to the training, there is actually a better way to do this. And they, they're now doing this in the, the UK. Um, back in the 70s, they had several high-profile cases that involved false confessions, and they realized that they were having a problem. So they started to videotape, audiotape all interrogations. They studied the techniques that were being used, and they said, oh, no, this is, this is wrong. And they've outlawed everything that we hold near and dear to our interrogation tactics in the U.S. Over there, they're considered to be human rights violations. And they have a different, totally different approach where you go into the interrogation room not to get a confession, but to get information. And they are very, very well trained in the proper way to ask questions, the proper way to structure interviews, and to elicit this information without 
these very coercive tactics and without um, unintentionally let you contaminating the uh, subject as well. And just one last thing, you know, when it comes to wrongful convictions, remember what I said before, that we use interrogation tactics on witnesses and other people who we believe aren't telling us what we think is true. And so there are a lot of wrongful convictions out there that are the result of bad witnesses, bad informants um, that gave us that bad information largely because of the way that they were interrogated. And so working in the field and in working with detectives and doing the work that you're doing now, writing this book and really sounding like you're an advocate for change in this, do you think that as a country, we are going to move towards what, say, they're doing in the UK? Or do, do you folks seem to be digging their heels in that there is no problem? Both. Yeah. Um, just like when it comes to videotaping, many, many agencies are still fighting it tooth and nail. They don't want to videotape. Um, and they come up with all sorts of reasons for not videotaping. You know, one of them is, oh, we'll never get another confession again. Well, they said that with Miranda. They said that when the courts outlawed us using third degree and torture tactics. But the, the truth is, is that, you know, videotaping does work and detectives who do use it tend to love it. Um, but the other problem is, is that um, when it comes to our interrogation techniques, they do work. They are very, very effective. They do get a lot of good confessions. They're cheap and easy to teach, and they don't take a whole lot of time. Uh, when you talk about what the UK is doing, that takes a lot more training. That takes a lot more investigative work on the part of the investigator going into the interrogation. And um, it takes a lot more dedication of resources, but it makes for better investigations. It's a much more professional way of dealing with people, a much more humane way of dealing with people. Um, you know, it disturbs me that the leading interrogation school in this country admits that their interrogation techniques are unethical or would be considered unethical in the normal setting. However, the people that we're dealing with, they say, are on a lower moral plane. And so we need to use these tactics. Um, you know, like that attitude, uh, that creates a lot of problems between law enforcement and the people that we're supposed to be serving. In the UK, their approach is, no, we treat these people with respect, humanely, because today's suspect may be sitting on your jury tomorrow, <laughs> you know? So you want to treat them right. I have a, a kind of question just for you personally. When you um, saw that video back and you decided to change your direction of what you did for work, what do you think was in you at that moment? And this is just my own probably curiosity that rather than um, saying, oh, wow, I made this mistake. I'm just going to I'm just going to kind of blaze past this and not and maybe not fess up to that mistake or, but instead really kind of changed your course of, of career. What do you think 
happened for you at that moment that you were able to kind of see this and say, I made this mistake. I want to not only be vocal about this, but I want to, you know, devote my work to making sure that these mistakes stop happening or really kind of uncover how pervasive they are. I'm curious uh, as to what kind of, what was happening for you with that? Well, I've always been involved in a lot of training and I've always found that people learn best when they see other people's mistakes. You can talk about successes all day long. Um, but, you know, what they, people really remember is when somebody fesses up to an error. And I didn't intend for it to take the course that it took. It, it just kind of, you know, happened. Um, but the more I began to look at what happened in my case, the more I began to look at what happened in other cases, I began to see that it's so much of a big picture type problem. Um, it's not just the interrogation tactics that are used. It's also uh, the organizational problems where detectives are under a lot of pressure to close cases quickly and, and, and confessions are a way to do that. Uh, there are prosecutors involved. Prosecutors have to uh, know that certain tactics are being used when it, when videos, when interrogations are not recorded, and that the detectives may not want that, that that the detectives may not want them to know about, and they have to accept you know kind of turn a blind eye to it. Same with judges and defense attorneys. You know they have their role in this as well because a lot of defense attorneys, once they get a client who confesses, all they want to do is plead them out because they also believe that no one would confess to a crime that they didn't commit and they're just not willing to spend the time and energy. Or maybe they don't have the time and energy. Some public defenders have hundreds if not thousands of cases as part of their caseload. And trying to defend a false confession case is an uphill battle that takes a lot of time and resources. So I may have been rambling there. Does that answer your question? <laughs> no, it, it absolutely did. I mean, I think what I um, found so compelling about these kind of cases coming out, I think Serial came out and really brought these sort of systemic issues to this large audience. And I think in what Caleb and I have really kind of um, – part of what motivated us to do this podcast was really wanting to sort of talk about the, yes, there is this individual case, but that the issues are actually very pervasive, you know, that they go from the judges to the attorneys, to the detectives. And, and, um, so I just really appreciate anybody that decides to devote their work to really kind of showing that and, and, and trying to remedy that in some way. Well, one very, very positive note that's come out in the last several years is this whole concept of what they call sentinel event reviews. And uh, right now the National Institute of Justice is sponsoring several pilot programs trying to find a way for law enforcement to look at the big picture when they do have what they call an investigative failure. Now an investigative failure could be a wrongful conviction, it could be a wrongful arrest, it could be a cold case. That wasn't solved. But what they do is they, just like in the medical field, if there's a mistake in the hospital, they convene all these experts to come in and examine it. And they're not looking for the bad apple. 
I mean, that's that's the easy way out. Oh, it's the detective's fault. Fire the detective. Blame the detective. However, you know, somebody trained that detective. Somebody supervised that detective. Somebody supervised or somebody you know, checked off on that interrogation after it occurred. And so try to look at the big picture and come up with solutions that will solve the issue rather than focus in on one person, blaming them, and then covering your eyes to all the things that led them to make those bad decisions uh, at the time. Those decisions that they thought were good decisions at the time, but just turned out to be bad later on. That's great. I'm glad that's <laughs> the, that pilot program is in the works. That's, that's good news. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. We really, really appreciate everything that you've had to share. Yeah, I really, it's been really great to hear from you and, and um, just kind of talk to us about something that we both had so many questions about and um, definitely with the case that we're looking at and in, you know, our criminal justice system in general. So I, I really, really appreciate your insight on this. Well, it's my pleasure, and I am hope that, you know, people got something out of it. I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Jim Trainum as much as we did. Again, in case you missed the title of the book, it is called How the Police Generate False Confessions an inside look at the interrogation room. And in the show notes for today's show, we will have a link to that book in case you want to buy it and read it and maybe start a book club with Nicole. I'm really excited to read it. So in last week's episode, we had talked about the confessions of Tommy and Carl, and we were considering using our interview with Jim and really kind of comparing Tommy and Carl's confessions uh, to what Jim had to say. But because the interview with Jim was so fruitful, we've decided to save that comparison for next week. So next week, we're really going to tease out Carl and Tommy's confessions and really put them up against to these best practices that Jim talks about and where the police may have made some mistakes and really use Jim's knowledge of confessions and interrogation techniques as a way of really analyzing Tommy and Carl's confessions. So we'll actually be reading some quotes directly from those confessions and seeing how those match up with Jim's suggestions and with Jim's cautionary tales. And then we'll also look at some of the facts that came out of those confessions and the investigation that was done around those. And lastly, we will also touch on next week Odell Titsworth and why we do not have a confession from him, even though he was identified by both Carl and Tommy as the ringleader of this crime. So we are going to have a very great episode for you next week going over all of those things so make sure that you tune in one week from today for episode six of unraveled thank you for listening to unraveled season one the nightmare in ada your hosts are nicole richards and caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. 
Voice Talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this Case Unravel.